Which way are we going? We're gonna go, we'll go up this way and then there's a little quarry that we can start in. Oh, and great. then up on top. See how we're doing for time and there's always, if we come back on the road that comes around the bottom of the crags, like yeah. a radical road. Welcome to the Art and Podcast, a podcast that asks, what do you do and is it art? My name is Ronan McMahon and I'm a performer and a theatre maker and I consider myself an artist. And uh, I make this podcast with Roy Shearer, who uh, is behind the scenes, but you might hear him chipping in from time to time uh, on the podcast itself. In this, our first episode, we met up with a friend called Gareth, who's a geologist. And um, we asked, is geology an art form? Gareth decided that we should meet in Edinburgh and climb Arthur's seat to find out. So apologies in advance for all the panting and shortness of breath. In retaliation, I decided to start with the hard-hitting questions. Do you spend much time in quarries? <laughs> it's an occupational hazard of a geologist, I think, spending time in road cuts and quarries. Yeah. Is it hazardous? Uh, I'm not into that. There is, I mean, the quarries here are so old, everything is pretty stable. If you go to an active quarry, obviously, yeah. they're blasting, then you don't want to be underneath while they're blasting. We make all our students wear high-vis jackets and hard hats because, you know, that makes them safe. Um, so that you can see them if something falls on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, what are you? <laughs> I am... A geologist, I'm a scientist, I'm a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, but I think mostly I would say I'm a geologist. Some people use geoscientist, but I would say I'm more a geologist. Is that like the people's front of Judea like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot of splitting. Um, What's the difference between a geologist and a geoscientist? I think geoscientist is a broader term, so it tries to encompass geography, uh, environmental science, earth science, um, anything about the planet, I guess. Whereas a geologist is very much about the rocks. Rocks, yeah. I thought that too. Where are we? We are in uh, Holyrood Park. We are just walking up through the middle of Holyrood Park, pretty much. It's Hunter's Bog down to the left. That big valley there? Yeah. It's called Hunter's Bog? Yep. I know that. And the peak of Arthur's Seat is up there. Uh-huh. Um, up to the left. What's this hill that we're up? Uh, I thought this was I don't, Well, yeah, the whole I thing... We were, I thought we were going to Arthur's Seat. <laughs> <laughs> what the... What is this? Just taking a little diversion. The, 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 it's, it's really far over the horizon. There, <laughs> the horizon on the on the right hand side up yeah. here ahead of us. That's the top of the Salisbury Crags. Right. Okay. Um, so that's the pretty famous view from the other side. Doesn't look very good from this side at the moment. Yeah. Um, and that all dips down underneath us here. And then this is what you see on the left is really the core of the old volcano. Oh. Um, but we'll go and walk along it in a bit. You're walking and you're talking, but what about the questions? Is there uh, interpretation? Oh, it's hugely subjective. Okay, right. So I think there's this false idea that science is 
purely objective and there's no interpretation, there's no creativity, there's no subjectivity to it. And that's just, that's just not true. Everything is interpreted to begin with. I mean, you could get quite philosophical about it and think back to Kant or whatever and say it's, you know, it's interpreted through a human's experience of it in the first place. But even if you want to be a little kind of more, um, I don't know, more detailed in, in trying to analyze that, then, you know, you'll have multiple interpretations and multiple theories as to how that thing that you've observed has appeared. So the history of geology is rife in that kind of theory, counter theory, and people slowly kind of build evidence to support their theories. Uh-huh. And sometimes one theory really wins out over the other, and other times there's kind of, you know, it's, it's still up in the air and it's still debated. Right. Can you, have you ever had an example of something you were like, that's the way it is, and then in your time as a geologist, you're like, oh, I was wrong? Um, no, nothing huge, I guess. Um, there's, there's still a kind of a bit of a debate about um, the existence of something called superplumes, which is quite interesting. And when I was doing my undergraduate degree in the early 2000s, it was really quite favoured as a, as a theory. And a superplume is this idea that, so, you know, a small plume is something coming up from deep in the earth um, and it's providing heat to the surface of the earth and it might dra- drive some volcanism like we're seeing here. So Hawaii is a good example of, uh, you know, Hawaii wouldn't be there if there wasn't a plume underneath it heating this, the surface of the earth and creating the volcanoes. Um, and then this theory kind of came about that there was a couple of super plumes. So they were continental size and there was maybe one underneath Africa. Um, that was just pouring out Africa. Yeah, right, just keep okay. it and lifting it and making it higher than it should be. Um, and it should be. Yeah, well, it was the, the, the various kind of geophysicists and um, people that, physicists, I guess, as well, that measure the gravitational strength and the magnetic strength of the, of the crust of the Earth were kind of debating why bits of Africa were higher than they should in theory be based on the results that they could see. And so one proposal was this superplume. Um, and I've kind of lost the, the thread of the debate more recently, but there's been quite a lot of counter-argument to say, well, actually, no, we, we don't really think these things exist. There's no, real, there's no real evidence for them. I guess they can't argue against them completely yet, but no one's come up with a definitive... But obviously, that's hugely attractive. That's yeah. why there's a thing called a sexy theory, isn't there? I mean, yeah. like, that, oh, this all got pushed up by this super plume. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, so everyone can get behind that. And, uh, it's a bit more interesting straight away compared to like, oh, well, actually, the guy at the back saying, uh, it's this and this and this and all these other things. Yeah. Yeah. Or there's many different things happening at the same time. And I mean, and you really don't have to go back very far in our own sun of geology to get fundamental shifts. So in the 1960s was only really when plate tectonics got established and, and kind of really believed really? as a theory. Okay. So a lot of my professors, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, had had their education prior to that establishment. And what were they taught? They were taught about these things called... Um, you okay? Yeah. <laughs> I just nearly fell in, <laughs> fell in a bog. Don't tell everyone! <laughs> um, we'll just cut around the back and then go up the top here, I guess. Uh, so before Platonics, what were people on about? They were, they were taught about these things called geosynclines, which I never really understood. The sounds kind of wacky to me, but um, that really everything well, was about... You some dog poo there. But I, <laughs> sorry. 
<laughs> Everything was it. was these big basins. So so the ocean was a big basin basically where the sediment piled up in the middle. And because there was so much weight piling up in the middle, that pushed the edges up and that created the mountains and the continents on either side. And uh, yeah, that was you and, and I guess that the cross didn't move around that much, you know, like the whole uh, South Africa, well not South Africa, the, the whole west coast of Africa and South America fitting together like a jigsaw puzzle mm -hmm. that we now would hold as true or as objective or as the best understanding of how it works. But at the time it was kind of argued away as a bit of a quirk about, oh yeah, it, it looks like it fitted together, but that's just a coincidence. Right. Um, and then plate tectonics was, you know, established, it had enough evidence to support it and then people said okay yeah probably they did fit together and then people found rocks that correlated across and fossils that you know of uh, existence of animals that matched when you when you fit the two continents when you put together. the two pieces together wow yeah it's even harder to convey and i don't yeah. think i pro properly grasp the time component of geology i think i can kind of get my head around the 3d aspect of it um, you know, from years of, of looking at it, but, you know, if I say 350 million years, can I really conceptualize what that is? No. It may as well be 10,000 years, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's like, there's bits of the geological history that, you know, like there's the boring billion, like the boring billion years of activity that happened on the earth that nobody really studies. Whoa, that's a thing? Yeah. Okay. Because it was so boring. <laughs> yeah, a billion years, a thousand million years. Uh, and we know almost not, nothing, nothing about it. Nothing interesting happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to say like the 80s. <laughs> where does that billion fall in relation to what we're talking about today? Uh, it's a lot older, so it's... Um, it's about, I think, 1.8-ish billion years ago to about 0.8 billion years ago. 0.8 billion being 800 million, and this stuff is 350 million. Uh, is that... What sort it's quite of recent things, to be so boring. What, what sort of things were living in that period? Not much. Uh, so the Cambrian explosion, which is kind of when we first have really good evidence of living creatures was about 550, 560 million years ago. Um, and that's, yeah, that's the, that's the boom in life. There were certainly uh, kind of bacterial um, things and sponges and thing called stromatolites, which are kind of an algal life form that were way back in the billions of years. But the big boom in life was, yeah, it was only 500, 60 odd million years ago. Geology and geography side by side in a perfect harmony, but they aren't the same thing. Oh no, oh Gareth, I'm sorry. So when you were studying geography, geology. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> the breath. <laughs> this hail, you know, has been a while. Uh, when you were 
when you were studying geology, how much of the interpretation were you allowed to, how much of the interpretation side of it were you allowed to invest in? Or were you like there to learn all the facts? Yeah, it was, I would say the first two years for sure were pretty much rote learning. Yeah. Reproducing facts, uh, trying to get a kind of a core understanding of the breadth of geology. The last two years, the last, the kind of the honours years, you started to get a little bit more independent and a little, you know, you had obviously a dissertation to produce and all geologists produce maps as well, so a mapping thesis to produce. And at that point, you're kind of, you're starting to engage with that more subtlety and uh, interpretational side of the science. You have to produce a map? Yeah, so um, I'm pretty sure that's still true in... I don't think you can, you can't get a geology degree in the UK uh, that's accredited by the Geolo Geological Society unless it involves an element of mapping. So you have to draw a map of what you're studying? Yeah. Okay, yeah. right. Yeah. And most undergraduates will do that, certainly in Scotland anyway, between their third year and fourth year in the summer. So you go off and spend a month or six weeks somewhere mapping, basically. Where did you draw your map? I did mine on Isla. Isla? Yeah, in the north end of Isla. So there's like a specific way of making these maps, right? Yes, yeah, so you're, t you're taught the mapping techniques. Yeah. Um, but then the actual production of the map at the end of the day is, is very uh, observational, so it's based on you know what you manage to actually observe in the field and then your interpretation of it and in Scotland so much of it is vegetated so if you're mapping this you'd have to somewhere draw a line between well I know that's the crater rocks up there and I know that's a lava flow over there but there has to be a border between them somewhere and very often you can't see that because it's covered in gorse for sure so you've got to get in there and see what's there. Well, no, you, you have to make your, your best estimate of where okay. that is. Which is, it kind of comes back to that point before where you're saying, you know, is there, your, is there a yes, no? Well, especially in maps, people kind of trust maps as this, you know, fact. It's written down on a map, it must be true, it's a fact. Yeah. But actually it's... You know, it's an estimation. It's an estimation. So how much of geology is, is creativity then? How much of it can be said to be a creative act? I think quite a lot. Certainly at the kind of, at the, the research end. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it ever gets called creative. You know, I yeah. think people like to think that it's, yeah, objective and final and yes, no, but actually a lot of it is about using your kind of your critical understanding of the subject to then produce something new, which is kind of my definition of creative. Yeah, my definition of creative is similar too, and it involves a conversation. So the idea that art is a conversation, where you're, you're talking, if art's a creative activity in itself, all you're doing is bringing up a conversation around a topic or around uh, yeah, around the subject. Yeah. And you're adding to that conversation. 
Yeah, and I think you could... And you get creative in how you do that. Yeah, and you could view science in very similar terms as, as far as I see it. And a lot of the process is, I kind of like that, you know, your phrasing of it being a con conversation, because even, you know, my reticence around publishing, it's, that's still a con conversation, because you're recording what you think, and then somebody reviews it and tells you whether they think it's acceptable for publication, or maybe you want to make these changes. And, but then once it's out there, then other people start to reference it and cite it and either say you're right or wrong, or we don't believe this bit or that bit. And so it evolves over time. And so the paper I wrote in 2011, I'd, if I wrote it today, I'd probably write it slightly differently because I've got a new understanding. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I could make the shows I've made before again, I probably wouldn't make a lot of them. Yeah. But that's, there's many reasons for that. I mean, you get to a different age, you're like, well, why did I want to make a show, uh, a puppetry show made of cardboard boxes? But I did at some point. Yeah. The thing about art is that it has an audience. Mm -hmm. It's, in general, it's put on display. It's there to be viewed and discussed and yeah. um, in its purest form, I suppose. I don't know if that's always true, but in general it is. Is there any aspect of, of your job in, in university and, and uh, in, in geology where you're putting things on display to be discussed by an audience? Um, I guess you could think about most of it as being a display for an audience of a different kind of makeup, maybe. Um, yeah, if we teach, obviously we're teaching to a classroom full of students. Uh -huh. I do field teaching, so take students out into the field and teach them about the rocks around them. That's kind of a form of audience. Yeah, I mean, um, teaching is a form of performance, so you yeah. do that on a daily basis, right? Yeah. I mean, do then, you remember your first day teaching? Um, I remember very early, uh, the first time I kind of had to demonstrate in a lab. Um, and that was quite nerve-wracking. <laughs> How'd it go? Uh, it was um, mildly amusing. So I was a PhD student at the time and I was in Canada. I was living in, in Canada doing my PhD. And I was given, in Canada, everyone has to teach as part of their stipend to do their PhD. And I was given this class to teach. And it was basically geology basics, right? It was geology 101. Okay. Like it, was called, today. it was called Geology 201, but anyway, it was, <laughs> it was Geology 101. And uh, it was the very first lab of Geology 101. And I was a grad student and kind of thought I knew everything and didn't do as much preparation for it as I probably should have. Um, and actually I was getting quite stressed about, so the first lab was to take all the students out into the field, which was a big park in the city. Um, and show them some very basic things in the field, like how to use a compass, um, how to measure a rock, this kind of thing, which any geologist should really be able to do in their sleep. But I was a bit concerned because it meant driving from the university to this park in this minibus. And I'd only moved to Canada a couple of weeks before and obviously you're driving on the wrong side of the road with a bus full of students. And I was kind of, that was the thing that I got you're stressed You're driving about. a bus of them? Well, like a minibus. Wow, that is stressful. Um, having never driven on the wrong side of the road and all that kind of stuff. 
So that's kind of what kept me awake at night before that lab. Yeah, that's got 999 written all over it. <laughs> yeah. I mean... And actually that all went fine, and then I got into the field, and I was like, okay, what are we doing? And there was two of us teaching it, so in the end I was saved by the second person, but uh, we'd been given these big plastic tubs that were full of high-vis jackets and hard hats, and then compasses, um, and kind of measuring tapes. And, um, and maps so they could work out where they were and make a recording or two. Um, and I was like, oh well, the first thing I'll do is I'll get out of the compasses and teach everyone to figure out where north is and um, you know how to take a measurement on a rock with a compass. Uh, and I opened the box and there was these things in this box. It didn't look like a compass to me. Uh, and it turns out in North America, there's just a completely different standard of geological compass than we use in Europe. And these are called Brunton compasses. And I literally couldn't even open the thing. There was like this little catch on the side that you had to find to open it. And I was like, ah. And the, like, the other person that was helping me teach, she was Canadian. So she was like, it's okay, Gareth, I'll do this. I'll show them how. And I was like, phew. Oh, <laughs> I wasn't wow. expecting that. And I was like, okay, well, that's fine. She'll do that. And then we'll get the maps out. And then I'll teach them how to find themselves on a map, you know, really simple orienteering stuff. You know, find a grid reference, that kind of thing. It's easy as opening a box. Yeah, and then I got, got the box of maps out, started looking at the map. And it was in effectively another language. It was in Alberta, they have this kind of ex-colonial imperial mapping system, which is called the Township and Range System. So instead of here, if I said, you know, well, let's pull out a an ordnance survey map and let's read off one side and the other side and we'll have two ordinances that we can pinpoint where we are. This thing like a grid. Like a grid, yeah. This thing is it is a form of a grid, but instead of having two two reference numbers, you had to find a series of things. So first of all you had to figure out which side of a meridian you were, which I didn't know how to do. Is that like a star sign? <laughs> it's like these really kind of long lines um, that you know split the world into segments, effectively. Right, yeah. Um, so you had to find that, and then you had to find out what range you were in and what township you were in, and then once you find out those, then you had to find out which legal square division you were in, and then which quarter of a legal square division, so north, south, east, or west. And anyway, I was like... Why is that important? All that stuff. <laughs> that's really bizarre, eh? That's, um, but that's how they divided up the land okay, when, yeah. when Canada was kind of... Canada was made? Made in, in Western terms, in European terms. So they divided the land up based on this system. And I didn't have a clue how it worked. So I had to rely on the Canadian uh, student again to explain that. And that was my first experience of teaching. <laughs> Did you ever hear the joke about how they named Canada? No. So the, the three founding fathers of Canada all arrived in a room and they were there and they were like, we've got a name to this country. And uh, one of the guys said, well, you know, down in, down south, they just pick three letters, U-S-A. Let's just do something like that. And they goes, yeah, okay, let's do that. So they go, well, how do we pick our letters? So they go, oh, yeah. So they get a Scrabble bag full of letters and they each pick out a letter. First guy picks out his and goes, well, I got a C, eh? The other guy picks out his and goes, well, I got an N, eh? The other guy picks out his and goes, well, I got a D, eh? What's that spell? 
Good one. Lame, but classic. <laughs> Do you, uh, that's interesting, because have you ever, I suppose, in your work, in the work As you can hear, Ronan was quite artists, out of breath example, when he asked this question, so uh, it didn't end up very clear. So I'll just repeat it, it word for word for you now. Do you, uh, that's interesting because have you ever, I suppose, in your work, in the work of artists, for example, a lot of work is done, there is a transaction in mind because it has to be a business sometimes and you have to make it worth everyone's while to do something like put on a show or whatever it might be. But of course, it also is the kind of industry where you could very easily be expected to do something for nothing. Does that ever happen in your work where you're asked to do something for the exposure? Or Yeah, definitely. It does, I mean, yeah. It's, I think it's a little bit different in that I'm salaried, so yeah, yeah, everything is technically covered. Yeah, but I'm, you know, in my job description, I'm employed as a researcher. So whatever that takes. So whatever that takes to do research, but yeah. then I'm expected to teach, you know, because if I ever want to get a lecturer's position or a yeah, yeah, professorship, yeah. then I need to have teaching experience. Uh -huh. But um, you are salaried, so that's covered in all that, right? Well, no, because I'm 100% contracted to do a specific research oh, Okay, project. right, right. So that's the contract to do the project in the, within the hours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So okay. there is expectation to do these extra things. But like I said, it's not quite, I don't think it's quite like in the arts world where you're completely asked to do something for free and, yeah. you know. As in like a standalone thing is what I'm kind of getting at. Yeah. 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 Um, well, we're on the top of Arthur's seat now. Yeah, we made it. <laughs> It's uh, looking pretty grim over there. Yeah. Let's talk about CCS. Let's talk about CCS. Let's talk about all the carbon and dioxide we possess. Let's talk about CCS. What does CCS stand for? Carbon capture and storage. Right. Have you heard of it? No. Sh should I have? <laughs> no. You know what all the words mean. So, okay, wind it back a little bit to climate change, mm -hmm. largely, or if not 100%, currently being driven by human activity. Um, and the main part of that is CO2 emissions or carbon dioxide emissions, mm -hmm. which are emitting into the atmosphere. It's a known greenhouse gas. It traps infrared light, it heats up the earth. Um, and it's happening at a rate faster than we've ever seen in geological history. Um, so we're running a you know an Earth a planetary scale experiment and we don't know what the end result will be. Um, so CO2 is the main culprit. <clears throat> we should probably stop emitting CO2 in the atmosphere unless we want to see what happens. Um, and one way to do that um, is this idea that you could capture CO2 either directly out of the atmosphere, which is quite hard to do, or currently you could collect it off the back end of a really um, high purity source. So if you've got a power station burning coal, it's emitting a lot of CO2 out of one chimney. So you could capture the CO2 at that point, compress it, stick it in effectively an old oil and gas well, and put it back into where the oil was, was taken out of. Um, oh, I see. And so, Trap it in the earth. And trap it back in the earth, yeah. That's a cool thing to do each day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the... It brings up the, the whole thing of the worthiness of your cause, what you do with your time. And that's often a thing for artists to 
kind of be okay with. Sometimes your art can speak about subjects that are really important, like the environment. Yep. Um, but often, I know my stuff is very centered around making people laugh, <laughs> which I think is very important. Yep. For many other reasons. But I have to convince myself that a lot along the way, that that's valid or useful or worthy. So, as far as that goes, your job has that. Is that something you've always... Oh my god. <laughs> the crow is interjecting. <laughs> Did you have something to say? <laughs> it's just... It's going to wait until I start speaking again. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that I've always searched for and hoped to do. Mm. Um, and as I said earlier, I worked in the oil industry for a while and one of the main reasons I left is I, feel, I felt like I wasn't doing that. You were missing that part. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to take that box. <clears throat> and it can feel... <laughs> on a bad day, working on carbon capture storage in the UK can feel like you're just kind of banging your head against a wall and you're not actually doing anything and you'd be better off doing something else. Yeah. Because of the progress that we're making. Which because is of the progress, okay. Kind of minimal. Um, well, I definitely know that experience. But I think everyone does, I suppose. This should be the less panty uh, <laughs> side of the walk. It's the less what? Panting side of the walk. Oh yeah, panting the downhill side. side. Yeah. So one of the questions as well. So we have an art, an art test. Okay. And um, it'd be cool to go through it mm -hmm. because through this test, it's quite scientific actually. <laughs> we're able to deduce whether or not your job can be described as art. Okay, right. sounds good. So the answers are either yes or no. <laughs> and there I are mean, seven. You, no, it's not, he's only allowed to say yes or no. Yeah. Right, okay. Well, I mean, they're yes, no answers. But you can say other words around the words yes and no. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> this could be very Ronan heavy, this bit, otherwise. Yeah, it will be. <laughs> I say something, you say yes or no. So, yes. Um, there are seven questions, and if you score four or more, then your job can be, can be described as art, okay? okay? So, number one, would you say you use creativity in your job? Yes. Why? Yeah, I think... Um, Maybe at the root of uh, any sort of education, or whether it's arts-based or science-based or, or otherwise, is kind of in trying to hone and engage your critical thinking ability um, to deduce answers, or maybe not even to deduce answers, but to explore a thing, whether that's a performance around a societal issue or whether that's trying to understand why that rock is there. Yeah. Um, the investigation of it. Yeah. It and requires a creative mind. And I think, yeah, you have to be creative. And, I, you know, I hate the kind of management speak of thinking outside the box and all that kind of stuff. But I think sometimes you do have to come at things from a slightly different angle and you can get stuck perceiving something from one yeah. direction that you, you don't resolve and it sometimes 
takes a little bit of luck, maybe. Um, but creativity certainly helps with that process. I don't mind that phrase, think, think outside the box anymore. I think it's gone full circle. Yeah. Yeah. It used to be cliche, now it's actually okay yeah, people again. People avoid it, so now it's... Uh, now it's kind of cool again, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number, of, number two is, um, is the study of geology a creative process? I suppose in, um, in art, we're very, when we're going through, like when I went to theatre school, the whole point of it was to experiment and be as creative as possible yeah. in what you were doing while learning the basics. I think it can probably... Uh, it's, there's a foundation that, that, that is non-creative that I think is necessary. And I, I suspect that's true of a lot of different branches of science. Yeah. Um, that there's well, just saying, some, yeah, four. There's, you know, the foundations of the last 200 years of thinking into these subjects have created a core of knowledge that is just necessary to know. And some of it is incredibly didactic. And, you know, knowing the name of this rock is basalt and that one's granite and that one's a shale and that one's a sandstone is, yeah. is not very creative. Uh, no, but they're basic, but it's, so that's understood. Yeah. But it's necessary to then get to the creative side and I think yeah. at, at the higher levels of geology you're encouraged to be a bit more creative but probably with constraints you know it's not just a yeah uh, a, a free-for-all kind of go out there and be as creative as possible it's yeah. kind of you know you definitely so was that a yes or a no <laughs> <laughs> what was the question is geological learning um, creative is the study of geology uh, a creative process. I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. And then the third question is, can what you do be put on display to an audience? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the main forms of dissemination of our knowledge is at conferences. So we either stand up and give a PowerPoint presentation in a room full of however many tens or hundreds of people, or we produce a poster. So, uh, you know, it's a it's an art form and there's, yeah. I spend a lot of time now supervising PhD students and kind of critiquing their posters that they're about to deliver because there's too much text on it or there's no narrative to it. There's nothing cohesive right, okay. about what they're trying to say. Um, you know, very often it's a, it's a graph and a whole bunch of text around that graph and you kind of, you have to spend a lot of time thinking about how, that, how you're gonna convey that message. So. Mm -hmm. Did I, yeah, the fourth question. Is, is there a community, like a hive mind around the world of geology? Because that's what happens in artistic circles, like it, it, you, you end up like meeting a huge community of artists and you work together and you, you go and see each other's work and there's a whole um, live community talking about what each other is doing mm -hmm. and involved in the same circles, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so because I work in quite a well, I suspect everyone would say this, but quite a niche part of the wider science. There's a fairly small gathering of people around the world that do very similar things to me. Yeah. So, and I would put that number at 10 to 20 people that- oh, That's manageable, that's nice. That do, that do enough that could really kind of critique or help me to understand what I'm doing. There's a much wider community that would understand what And I'm do doing. you meet and speak regularly? Yeah, so it's uh, conferences are very often the places that you meet. Um, we have facilitated kind of networks that we that we join as well. So 
I belong to two. I belong to a Scottish one and a UK-based one of researchers that are all doing similar things. Um, that's a slightly wider thing. And then internationally, that's where I would draw that core of 20 people that are doing you know, virtually the same thing as me, just in different places. And then the fifth question is, have you ever done anything for no payment just for the exposure? Outside of your work, uh, salary position? Um, as a geologist? As a geologist. Yes, but infrequently, I think. So, um, well, that, and it, I'd, I'd struggle with this one a bit because I'm salaried, so I kind of expect that a lot of this comes under my job title, but yeah. the public engagement event I'm doing in April, that's on a weekend. I'm certainly not. I'm contracted for 35 hours a week, and mm. I will already have done my 35 hours that week and more probably um, and so then I'll go and do this public engagement event and there's no obligation to do it right um, so why, why would you do it then why are you doing it? because I think it's really important to communicate our science I think especially around public perception and understanding of what we do I think it's a it's a critical component of us getting on top of climate change and if the at the end of the day if the reason we don't do CCS is because of public opinion, then we failed as scientists to convince people that it's necessary. Um, and so I think it's an, it's an important part of doing that. Uh -huh. and I agree. It's not, yeah, it's not part of my job description, I guess, is to do that lobbying, whether it's with the public or with, the, it's with politicians. It's great to hear that because um, the, the, the image of the scientist is not to be the public figure. And that's changing, I think. I think it's changing. It's also hard because not you're not trained in how to communicate necessarily. Uh -huh. I think it's getting better now. PhD yeah, students coming through have a, a series of training programs and workshops where one of them will be how you communicate with the public or with a academic crowd. Yeah, and there's whole festivals and degrees yeah. in science communication now. Absolutely. But that is a fairly recent thing. And yeah. I think previously it's basically relied on people that are good at it, doing it. Yeah, um, so I mean, that, 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 that now will decide the success or failure of your research grant, right? And how well you can communicate the idea and how yeah. Yeah. well it can be communicated to the wider public. Is that becoming more of a pressure on grants than it ever has before? Absolutely, yeah. 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 I mean, there's a lot of stuff now where you have to demonstrate what they call impact. So how that, how the work that you do translates into policy or, or development of something or commercialization of something. Then of course there is the reason to study it for the sake of studying it. Yeah. It necessarily... But that's getting harder and harder to fund. So kind of yeah. your blue skies research, you know, studying something for the sake of studying it is, is getting really hard to get funding for. Yeah, that's what I hear. Um, and the sixth question is, would you ever have described yourself at any point in your career as an emerging geologist? No. No. Or like just, uh, igneous extrusion. Yeah, like a super <laughs> crew. <laughs> waiting to explode <laughs> your geology. Oh, <laughs> great. Sorry. Uh, no, I guess we have, within academia, we have rankings, I guess, or titles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm a postdoctoral research associate which is a step up from a PhD student, but it's a step below a lecturer. So we have, we certainly have a hierarchy. Um, 
but I, th I don't think we'd ever say we were emerging or, mm -hmm. or outwardly acknowledge that we're in training, which is what we are. You know, yeah, we're, we're yeah. Professors it's definitely in a thing in art to be kind of emerging as an artist. Yeah. And it's not clear when that starts and ends. Yeah. It depends on the funding application as which you are. <laughs> Actually, there's a new thing. Well, maybe it's not that new. Certainly something I've been aware of the last four or five years is um, being labelled early career. So a, yeah. an early career researcher. Yeah. So now I tick a lot of boxes that qualify me or disqualify me as early career based on how many years it is since I did my PhD or oh. whether I have a permanent contract or and all this kind of stuff. So maybe that's a, 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 a kind of a similar Yeah, thing. no, that's, it's obviously happening all over then. It's yeah. interesting, I thought it was me. In art, that kind of phrasing is, is, has been normal. The seventh question is, could your family accurately describe what you do on a daily basis? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> they would... Uh, accuracy and precision. No, I don't think they could. No. They, they would all have a different take on a different aspect of what I do. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of that would be rooted in, in a, a stereotype of what an academic is or what a geologist uh -huh. is rather than what I actually do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you scored six out of seven. Wow. Okay. That is a high score. That's a high score. <laughs> well, so we've only done this once for one. That's a high score. Both of the times you've done this, that's the highest score. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, that means that we can say that your job as a geologist is very artistic. Yeah. It's full of creativity, it's full of um, performance. Yeah. There's an element of display to it and and you can't accurately describe what it is to your family. Yeah. <laughs> so which is key. Yeah. Congratulations. Excellent. I wonder if you did it the other way around, if you interviewed a bunch of artists and asked them if they were if they if their job could be described as scientific. Yeah. Oh, what the answer would idea. be. Do you want to do a podcast together? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Here's Roy. So Gareth passed the test. Yeah. Does that, how does that make you feel, Gareth? What, is, what do you feel like? <laughs> um, intrigued. It's been, it's been interesting to try and think about this stuff by discussing it with you. And I've always kind of thought that creativity and arts and science is all a spectrum and that we all just fit somewhere on it um, so it's kind of nice to hear that that's validated on some level um, <laughs> this yeah, is a very yeah. respected level <laughs> this is some the, level the litmus test for artists thank you very much for listening to the art and podcast uh, thank you very much to Gareth um, for taking our arts test and passing with flying colours. Thank you very much to Gareth also for bringing us up Arthur's Seat and showing us everything interesting in the geological world of Arthur's Seat. Thank you to Roy Shearer who produced this podcast and came along for the walk also, as you heard. Um, the next uh, podcast will be called Art and Nannying and that's the next job we'll be investigating to see if nannying can be called an art form. So please stay with us for that. And thank you very much, and see you next time. This is the outro. This is the outro. You have to now go. You have to now go. Goodbye. Goodbye.
goodbye. So there's some mind-boggling statistics out there at the moment that, you know, humans at the moment move more sediment around in terms of, you know, building structures or building roads or digging and quarrying and just moving material around yeah. than all of the rivers in the world do. Wow. You know, like we... So there's this big debate at the moment about whether we, we start a new um, geological period. So currently we're in the Holocene. Um, Holocene. Holocene. H-O-L-O-C-E-N-E. Great words. But there's now a debate about whether we should be in the Anthropocene. Anthropocene, as in anthropomorphic. Oh, I've heard that word. Anthropomorphic, because we're changing it. Because we've become geological agents. You know, we are such an impact on the landscape and the climate and everything else that we would now be recognisable in a layer of rock yeah. in another billion years. I think people would care more about geology if they knew they were all geographical agents. Yeah. You know? Or yeah. geological agents. Yeah. Yeah. And again, three times. <laughs> so Jeffrey, be funny. I'd love to be recognised in a layer of rock. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a... more recognition than I've ever received. <laughs> it's going to be kind of a dirty, it's smudgy, kind of black layer of rock. And... Stuff. <laughs> Sorry, what are you saying? I was just saying it's going to be a dirty, smudgy black layer of rock as we've like burnt the planet, you know? Yeah, well, it's mine, right? <laughs> there should probably be some plastic residue. <laughs> Tesco bag there, it'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs>